over the years, I had several bands crash in my mom's house um, when I wasn't even living there. I'm like, mom, is this cool? Welcome back to Growing Up Punk, the podcast about punk rock and all of its friends. My name is David. My host typically, or my friend typically, I should say, is Aaron. Uh, he's not hanging out today. It's it's the summer of, I don't know what we call it. We're, we're, we're just, we got a ton of interviews that we're plowing through this summer. So uh, this one is my conversation with Rich Egan, which of course, Rich Egan is uh, one of the founders of Vagrant Records. And uh, we're going to get into that in a few moments. Uh, but before we do, go follow us on uh, Instagram and Twitter at Growing Punk Pod. You'll find our personal Instagrams and Twitters there as well. Uh, wherever you're listening to the show, share it, rate it, review it, all that kind of stuff. You know, you know how it goes. Tell your friends about the show. Now, for myself, and this, this conversation was uh, one that kind of took a little bit of time to put together. We went back and forth a number of times and had some rescheduling and all this kind of stuff. But when all was said and done, it was uh, one of my favorite conversations that I've got to have yet on, uh, on the podcast. And uh, I got to chat with Rich about uh, the five records that really shaped Vagrant Records, the five releases that shaped Vagrant Records. We also talk a little bit about, um, I got him to share a few records that inspired him to get into the music industry, that inspired him to get into starting a label. Uh, and, and actually not just records, there's some movies and stuff that are in there as well. Um, it's, it's a really interesting conversation, kind of a look behind you know, the curtain or what have you of, uh, of Vagrant Records and how it all started and then obviously blew up in the early 2000s and really took off. Uh, so this was this conversation was a lot of fun to have and uh, I think you're really going to enjoy it. So yeah, without wasting any more time, this is my conversation with Rich Egren, Egren? No, Rich Egan of Vagrant Records and the five records that shaped Vagrant Records. Because I was for 40 years. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. I was say when we were messaging, you're like, did you mean Pacific? And I was like, wait, is he not in California when we're talking yeah. time? So good for That's what it dawned on me. I was like, wait a second. I'm like, I should probably ask because oh, I have a 310 yeah. number and I'm from California. Everyone assumes I'm always there anyway. So. Right. Yeah, that's fair. But it worked out perfectly because I was on the highway when I texted him. <laughs> I was you're like, not, oh shit. You're not supposed to do that, man, texting me on the no. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was stopped and I pulled over to text you. Yeah, exactly. That's what that's what we all do, right? Pull mm-hmm. over to the shoulder, just immediately jam on the brakes. Of course. Send a text does it when they're driving. Yeah, yeah, never. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I don't know. We could just jump. Let's go all the way back to the beginning. Um, and when yeah. I say the beginning, I mean, like, did you grow up in a home where music was a thing or was that something you kind of discovered on your own? Um. Well, let's see. That's, I grew up in a home where music, it was a thing, but there was no musicians. Right, okay. But I, I grew up with, I was um, I was the only boy out of five kids, so I had three older sisters and one younger sister. My three older sisters all had, especially one of them had really good taste in music, and mm. she's kind of the one that led me down the punk rock path at a very young age. So 
when um yeah once once that bug bit when i was probably you know like when we all discovered 13 14 yeah. right in there yeah it just that was it you know i kind of knew what i was gonna do the rest of my life that, that's awesome do you remember what that first band or record was that kind of introduced you to punk um yes i do well it, it's kind of a it's kind of a two-tiered answer because um the first one but i didn't consider it punk rock i didn't know what it was i just knew that it was incredible was the clash yeah okay. with uh lemon calling yeah and um because i i had had i'd heard obviously you know this was when they were having um should i say or should i go and rock the casbah and i was like eh, not really my thing mm -hmm. but for some reason my sister was like, I, you got to check this out. And it was, it was London calling. I was like, holy shit, this is my thing. Yeah. You know what, but I didn't consider it punk rock, you know? Right. And that's when I was young, I was 12. And then, but then a couple of years later, it was, it was black flag. Hmm. It was black flag was my first show that I went to, um, the summer before ninth grade, they did a 4th of July, uh, free show on the Capitol steps in LA in okay. Westwood, yeah. a legalized weed thing. And I just remember every kid from all around was just packed on the bus, just just showing up at this thing. It was, you know, it was incredibly scary and intimidating because punk rock was a lot more violent back then. You know, yeah. it was scary, yeah. especially for a kid. Like, a, you know, like I wasn't even in ninth grade yet. But it was that. And then from that, the Descendants and Social Distortion and Bad Religion. And, um, you know, it was all around me mm -hmm. in California. So, so like going going to that black flag show um what were what was your parents reaction to that like did they have any idea what you were off to not a clue <laughs> no. i'm sure i said i was heading somewhere that i could have been uh should have been going to and like right. every kid in my neighborhood we were all going straight straight to the show oh that's awesome it, you know it was a, it was fourth of july so it was it was and it was a daytime show right. so it wasn't like like you know they weren't letting me in in eighth grade just roam around at night going to punk right. rock shows <laughs> yeah I mean, maybe you never know so yeah no no my parents weren't that liberal i mean they're <laughs> liberal but then just not with their parenting skills like right that. did did you so i guess sticking with your parents did they ever really um kind of get on board or get involved in any of i mean like whether it was you going to shows or even later you know as vagrants a thing and it's kind of and it's growing were they did you ever like drag them out to a show yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, um, my dad died the year before I started Vagrant. So he died when I was 18. And but then my mom, um, she saw the whole thing. Uh, she didn't pass away until, um, you know, eight, nine years ago. Mm -hmm. So she saw she went to shows all the time. I think uh, when Dashboard played, um, um, my mom's from New York, was from New York originally. So when Dashboard played Madison Square Garden, I flew her out there for that and, and mm. she hadn't been back to New York in 30 years, yeah. but we made like a whole week of it. And she was so stoked. She that's just, cool. she loved it. She'd frame all the things and the whole deal. Yeah, she was so into it. <laughs> that's too awesome. Yeah. Um, so I guess at, at what point did you, cause did like, did you play in bands? Do you play music or anything like that? Or were you just always like a big fan of music? Yeah, that was it. Like it was just, I was just a massive, it was like, you know, like I said earlier, it's like, I, I just kind of knew like, oh, this is what I'm going to do. Yeah. Not this is what I'm going to play because mm. I can't play music. I can right. play really crappy three chords on a guitar sometimes. Yeah. Um, but I, I was always able to like, 
hear it, you know, and like, and I knew kind of what it was appealing to me anyway. And I knew there was other kids like me that, and, and so that's why punk rock like struck, uh, struck such a chord in me. It was just like, I knew it immediately, you know? Mm. So it was, um, yeah, no, I, I never even wanted to be in a band. Yeah. <laughs> it just looked too complicated. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. It's, it's yeah. just, it's such an interesting angle. Like I've, I've never talked to not that I'm aware of anyway, sat down and chatted with anyone who started like a label. So, cause you, you often hear the story, obviously I've talked to more musicians than anything, but where they, you know, get inspired by the music or whatever. And they're like, I want to do that. So it's just such an interesting idea for, for me to hear someone say, Oh, I want to do that, but not actually play that, but I want to be involved in this in some way. So, um, do, yeah, that, that's, that's just such a, such a foreign thought to me. <laughs> huh. Well, I think we were we were texting about what the thing kind of inspired me was yeah. when I saw another state of mind. Right. And I was just like, oh, that's what I want to do. Yeah. I want to have a house and have bands crash in my house. And that's the lifestyle that I want to be associated with. And that, that's how it happened. Like, but I never it never even dawned on me, like, maybe I can play drums. Right. Drums look like, you know, like really advanced algebra to me. I'm just like, <laughs> yeah. No thanks. So yeah. yeah. So it was just the whole did, thing. Did you have a house then that bands could come crash at and put on oh, yeah. shows and stuff like that? Yeah. yeah. Well, once I had my own house, like right. they were actually, I take that back. I've had over the years, I had several bands crash in my mom's house um, <laughs> when I wasn't even living there. I'm like, mom, is this cool? Like we had, um, <laughs> you're not there. That's funny. all the time. But yeah, my first apartment, my second apartment, my third apartment, that was all listed in uh book your own fucking life. Yeah. Which was, you know, the touring manual that Maximum Rock and Roll used to put out. Yeah. And you list it like, hey, I've got a crash pad. Or mm-hmm. like, hey, I know a good spot for dumpster diving. <laughs> and so when bands roll through town, they would just call you from a payphone and you'd be like, Yeah, I'm coming, I get off work in like a half an hour, I'll meet you back there. So yeah. bands are always crashing in my yeah, yeah. That's that's cool. Um so I mean you mentioned another state of mind. At what like what age did you see that to kind of think this is what I want to do and this is what I can do? Um well after it came out like i think it came out in 82 i want to say so i saw it probably in 84 85 so three or four years after it came out okay where i was old enough to kind of go oh i could actually do that instead of just like you know that looks like a bunch of grown-ups right (laughs) yeah well and we we texted we were were texting back and forth and i said oh that movie it's come up a few times with different artists and whatnot and every time all i can think of is so i grew up uh, outside Calgary, but going to the shows in Calgary. And there's that whole scene. I remember the first time I saw it, the whole kind of like scene or couple scenes where, um, you know, Mike Ness is, is writing another state of mind and like, on the and, back porch. And, yeah. And the scenes yeah. are in Calgary. I'm like, this is so wild. Like, I mean, obviously this was happening long before I was going to shows cause I wasn't going to shows in Calgary until like the late nineties or in early two thousands. But, um, just such a, such an interesting world to kind of think about but um yeah so it's just weird to turn that on and be like hey i wonder i wonder if i know where that is <laughs> or, yeah or if that's yeah. still there but oh i was thinking like you know when i saw i was like where the hell is canada i mean i yeah. knew where it was but i was like i didn't know what it was yeah and uh you know when they're interviewing that that one kid who's like just completely messed up and he's got a very thick like canadian accent <laughs> and right. it's just like and i was like is he speaking English? <laughs> Most of the punks come party here. It's where everybody hangs out, have good times, bands play. Like Calgary's probably just started a couple of years ago. 
with punk scene and everybody's basically still fighting for it to keep a hold of it, I guess. Why is it so tough here? Just because there's too many rednecks and cowboys. People are too narrow-minded, I guess. like you can tell how much you say what he was saying was like i love punk rock you know yeah, yeah. so it was like yeah and then as i think i told you but i came to absolutely fall in love with canada I've been there yeah yeah times. well and i was gonna say we were, we were messaging back and forth about you know because you some some records that kind of inspired you along the way and one of them was canadian uh which is funny so it was cowboy junkies the trinity sessions which is what's so funny about this is like growing up in canada I was always aware of who the Cowboy Junkies were. Like it was a name that was floated around. I knew mm-hmm. they existed. And so when I, you know, when, when you sent me the records, I was looking them up. And I was like, have I ever actually listened to them? And I just fully assumed they had something on the radio. But as I like went through, I was like, no, yeah. I don't recognize any of this. So it, yeah. it's kind of, kind of interesting to me. How did, how did like, I guess maybe were they just, you know, like circulating the college rock sort of scene down there or because yeah. sometimes as a Canadian, you kind of think like, Oh, we've seen bands get big up here and no one in the States even knows who they are. So right. then to hear a band that, you know, is not necessarily huge here, but familiar enough. And then people talking about them in the States kind of blows my mind a little bit. Yeah. They were, they were like, they were, they were making the college rock rounds, um, when I was in college and, uh, but the thing that struck me, I mean, the fact that this, the, I guess this kind of goes back to what we were talking about, like what made me think I could do it kind of thing was like, I've always been fascinated with the back room, how things work mm-hmm. in terms of like how art gets brought to art lovers or, you know what I mean? And how it yeah. challenges and that whole dynamic. So like my, I've been fascinated with how records get made, not the engineering process, but like, how did they decide to, you know, to have that, to use that producer? What was that guy's discography that made him? So right. the Cowboy Junkies in particular was like, it's this family. They recorded it in a church on what was then just a DAT tape, you know, on a, one microphone hanging in a church. And it sounded better than any record. Yeah. <laughs> I was like fascinated. And then I'm like, and how is some kid in Los Angeles hearing some band from Canada? Yeah. And it was just, and it's the most haunting record. And so Really, it was more about the business of it. And then obviously the music's amazing. But I was just like, oh, this is incredible. This is yeah. what I, you know, that's, I want to do that. Yeah, that's cool. Like I, putting it on that first time I was, and I, I must've been maybe, either I was on their Wikipedia or it was on Apple Music, like a little write-up about it or whatever. But when I read that bit about it being recorded, like live to tape in a church, one microphone, I was just sitting there going, really? Like right? that's that's pretty impressive. Like just, I mean, not, not for them to perform it live, 
and and capture that but just like the one microphone and it's yeah it sounds it sounds incredible and yeah. uh yeah i think you used the word haunting to describe it which is 100 percent. and i mean I, I think a lot of that comes in from you know exactly how it was put together uh they really captured that so that's that's pretty great you mentioned bands like descendants and stuff like that um and uh, interesting, you have replacements on this list, which I think maybe we'll get to because we're going to come back around okay. to replacements uh, with with another record that you shared with me. But um, what about like Jawbreaker and uh, like where where were you at when you kind of first heard them? Um, well, when I first heard them, we we grew up in the same neighborhood, oh, um, right. and we both grew up in Santa Monica. We all both um, Adam Blake and myself. Chris is from New York, but. Um, but I didn't know that they were about three years older than me in high school. But um, so when Unfun came out, um, I had already, I, I was familiar with the band, but I didn't really pay a whole lot of attention to Unfun. Um, I thought it was good, but it was one of many punk rock records I thought was good at the time that I was mm-hmm. listening to, you know? Um, it, but it was, and that was, that was kind of like, it was a weird time because like to back up before that, it was like LA had a punk rock scene, you know, with Black Flag, Descendants, uh, Bad Religion, Social D. Um, and then it got, it just stopped. It just stopped dead. Like right. the bands broke up, the scene got really violent, people were getting shit beaten out of them at shows, and it just crashed and burned. Yeah. And that was when I was like in, I was like 14 or 15. So it was about, right when I was starting to like figure it out. Right. It just went away. So then LA suffered through, and I guess the whole country did or possibly the world suffered through the hair metal days. (laughs) And so then, but then at the end of the eighties, beginning of the nineties, you had Fugazi came out. You had bad religion coming out. You had, I mean, bad religion obviously had been around for 20 years at that point, but their resurgence after their kind of exploration into, and a lot of bands like TSOL and those bands, not bad religion, but th- a lot of bands kind of started to go down the hair metal thing. Like, Oh, right. I guess we got to do this. And you're like, I- I'll never forget. I saw TSOL. I went to what I thought was a TSOL show, but they were actually the opening act for a band called guns and roses oh, at yeah. this like VFW hall. And I'm like, what the hell happened to TSOL? They look like, you know, they look like <laughs> ass metal. So yeah. yeah, that was a quick aside back to jawbreaker. So like, 90 or like 88, 89, 90, then 91, like 91 was like face, face, don't turn away. Bivouac, the jawbreakers bivouac. I think I want to say Ranson's first record came out. Um, Obviously green day had come out two years before. So it started to be like, Holy shit. Punk rock is back, but it was, it wasn't the punk rock from when I was like, you know, a young teenager. It was a lot more socially conscious and like the whole DIY thing that I loved about Fugazi minor threat had come West. Yeah. If that makes sense. And I just, I, once Bivouac came out, that was like a, that was literally a life changer for me. Hmm. Like that made me just like really solidify, like this is what I'm going to do the rest of my life. I'm going to do business like this. I'm going to find out every band that this band influenced and is influenced by they, who they tour with. I'm going to put out seven inches. I had the Jawbox, Jawbreaker, seven inch split, the same I am split. Like I just started fiending. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, this day, 30 days, 30 years later, I mean, 
I manage them now, so it's it's a little different. But <laughs> yeah. it's still I'm still super fan, you know. Yeah. So, so. where uh, where were you when not where were you you know physically or personally or anything, but when Dear You came out with with Jawbreaker? Like, were you on the fence with that one? Did you did you like it right no, away? No, <laughs> I wasn't on the fence at all. I hated it. Yeah. So where are you now with that record? Do you still oh, kind it. of? Yeah. Yeah. No, I I came around on it. Um and and um. Yeah, I've, I've, I was pretty I was pretty outspoken about how much I did not like it. <laughs> I think so, a lot of people were though, right? Yeah, but I unfortunately had the um, I had the uh, the unfortunate opportunity to appear in the documentary in the Jawbreaker documentary right, yeah. where I slam it and it was like I hated everything about it. Yeah. And then they bring it around at the end and and I'm like, and they you know I was like you know what I came to like the record it's a really good record. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I hated it and I hated it because. Uh, not because of the music, because songs are great. Yeah, but everything else associated with it was every was the antithesis of what my Jawbreaker were, mm. stood for. Mm-hmm. It, it sounded overly processed, like super overproduced. It was on a major label, obviously. It sounded really expensive. Whereas, like Twenty Four Hour Revenge Therapy, which is one of my top records of my life. Um, was recorded in three days with Steve Albini for eight hundred dollars. Yeah. You know, so so the backstory was that to me, Jawbreaker was like my my minor threat. You know, okay. to me, yeah. they were like Fugazi. They were the paragon of like of just like ethical everything DIY, low show, low dose shows, t shirts, the whole thing. Like why I got into the whole lifestyle, you know, yeah, yeah. and then to go and do that when they said they would never do it, like literally a month before they signed, they said they would never sign a major label. And then they did. I was super bummed. So it was clouded. I couldn't listen to the songs as they were. Yeah. Um, I remember somebody sent me the, the demos, not the demos, the advanced cassette copy before it came out. And I was just crushed. Yeah. I crushed. I love, I love having these conversations because like bands like, like Jawbreaker are, I actually, the first time I kind of got into them was like Dear You was was the record that was out. Mm-hmm. So like that was my introduction to Jawbreaker. And then just over the years in either, you know, kind of exploring back catalogs of bands or uh, a lot of times in reading books that maybe feature these bands, I go back and listen or conversations like this. And I'm always like, man, I wish I could put myself in that situation when some of these records came out. Like I... Um, whether it's the early jawbreaker stuff or recently I was chatting with Dan from the promise ring and, you know, just talking about early promise ring stuff and just how much, you know, it kind of shifted and changed over the years to go back and, and re, I guess, because a lot of the bands that I loved when I, you know, was growing up were the ones that were directly influenced or playing with these bands. Right. Right. So it's just kind of fun to go back and hear, you know, what it sounded like in those those early days and what people were kind of attaching to uh, with those bands. Yeah. It was a different world too, because things like all that kind of stuff mattered where now it's not even, you know, I've got a bunch of teenagers that I'm raising and Mm -hmm. it's like, there is, even though they're, they grew up around this. So, and they're very much into punk rock, their friends don't know what record labels are. You know, they don't know about like, a major label or an indie label or ethical this or sampling that they don't care. Like, but that to us was intrinsically linked with the music, Mm -hmm. you know? And you, so therefore you could always kind of sniff out a poser band that were just, just become punk rock overnight, you know? 
yeah. you know, like made a trip to Hot Topic and they're like, oh, we're going to do this now. Yeah. And you're like, dude, you don't know what any of this shit means. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and it's like, so that was, um, we were very territorial and very protective of that. So mm -hmm. I think when, when they went to Geffen and they made Dear You, that was just kind of this, like, you know, the death of the innocence kind of thing. You know sure. what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So, but um, yeah, in hindsight, it's a, it's a phenomenal record. <laughs> yeah. That's, let's move another band that you would actually, not that, well, I guess you did say you're managing Jawbreaker now. So yeah, you did end up working with them, but another band that you'd end up working with specifically with the label rocket from the crypt was one that you'd mentioned with their album circa now as kind yeah. of one that sort of, um, I guess influenced or inspired you or what, or what have you, uh, what, what was it about rocket from the crypt that kind of just, that sucked you in? Um, again, it was 91, same year. So what I was a, so immersed in it. It was <laughs> yeah. like, what a year, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like those, those are three of my favorite records, punk rock records for sure. Yeah. Just don't turn away, you know, bivouac and, and circa now. I mean, yeah. face, face rock from the crypt and jawbreaker who all became my lifelong, you know, obsessions in yeah. many ways. But, um, I'll tell you rocket was, was so it was okay. Here's the, here's the crazy thing about rocket as, as far as like what sucked me in. Cause when I first heard it, I was like, what the hell is this? Yeah. Like, like I had heard pain as a fragrance and, and I was like, okay, it's kind of noisy ish, whatever. Like I, it, I come to, came to love it of course, yeah. but kind of like unfun. I, at first I was like, okay, it's, it sounds like it, but, um, but circa now I listened to him like, what's everyone freaking out about? And not that it was like, everyone freaking out, but in my friend group, you know, and I'm yeah. like, but then it's one of those things where it's like, if you have that visceral of a reaction, when you first hear it, I think you either got to love something or hate something to mean it, it makes, you know, if you're right in the middle, it's probably not a very good record. Right. You know, yeah. but circa now I was like, I was like, Oh, this isn't really my thing. It's got horns. It's got really distorted vocals. It's yeah, yeah. noisy. But then I'm like, but God, it's catchy as hell too. And they have those just big, huge, like guitar hero type of licks yeah but it's a in punk rock and and it's like wait it's also kind of like tongue-in-cheek because the lyrics are so like just obscure just john reese is just another level genius right but like like what is he even singing about you know what i mean <laughs> yeah and then i kept revisiting it, kept revisiting it and then again just like everything else kind of the things that sucked me in were the way they did their business rocket was putting out seven inches with every little label they toured how they wanted to you know with the bands they wanted to tour with they were the kind of the rock of the san diego scene which is only two hours south of me um yeah. and so and then when i saw them live i was like okay holy shit this turns the whole thing on its head because while they're the most in many ways still to this day punk rock like the most punk rock people ever John Reese is one of the most punk rock guys ever, but I see him live and they're all wearing matching Seacoin bowling shirts and they have pompadours and they're like full on showbiz. And you're just like, this is the greatest paradox of all time. Cause <laughs> it's all tongue in cheek, but yeah. the songs are not tongue in cheek. Songs are amazing. Yeah. So once I saw him live, I was like, you know, they were, they became my heroes. So yeah. that's another band I got to sign. I was like, how's this happening you know yeah yeah well that's yeah. and that's why i want to because uh it's it's funny 
I mean, when we did, I sat down with Roger from No Motive a while back, oh, right? Man. And th- yeah. this is where our, our conversation started in the very beginning was that episode that we did on, on Vagrant. And, uh, and when he, so he had Rocket from the Crypt on his list. And I very much had that reaction where it's like, I had, and the thing is, I'd heard them before because just over the years, they're a name that was always around. So I had, mm-hmm. you know, I think they had a song in Tony Hawk, maybe. Um, uh, they, uh, like in they, well, we put, they were, um, they did, they had, yeah. well, I put it cause Vagrant put out that Tony Hawk soundtrack for Tony Hawk Underground. Oh, oh yeah. Okay. Um, um, no American Wasteland. Yeah. Right. And so we put together that soundtrack yeah. and then we put out the soundtrack too. Yeah. So yeah, Rocket, Rocket did, I think they did a suicide cover for that. Yeah. They could have been in a couple other Tony Hawks, but yeah. Like yeah. there's, there's a song I think for sure anyways, maybe even off of the record that, uh, that you guys have put out that I was like, Oh. I know this song, but at the same point, listening to the album as a whole, I was that, that very same reaction. Like, what is this? Like, what is going on? And, you know, and I had that conversation with Roger saying like, I don't even know how to like describe this, you know, not that. Cause like we bounced back and forth. Like I had, I think you were laughing at this, but I had like brought up, I was like, is it, do they are they like a ska band with the horns, right? That's right, I remember that. And then but yeah. like there's like rockabilly going on. There's like all sorts mm-hmm. of just like stuff. But uh they're yeah, they're they're a pretty neat band. And it's cool that you, you know, they were be, they were a band that, you know, kind of inspired you and then you would eventually get to work with them down the road. So I could only yeah. imagine, you know, kind of what that that felt like. But um what so what came for cause if I if I understand the history of the label correct, it was actually the management side first, right? No, it was okay. it was the, yeah, it was the label side first. Oh, sweet. Um, so so it start like so. How did that start? Was that just you saying I just want to put out some songs? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was it, it was kind of the, that's what we did. You know, it yeah. wasn't like anybody was going to put out songs for the bands I liked anyway. And right. if you scrap together a few hundred bucks, you could put a seven inch out and you could sell it to your friends and the band could sell it to shows. And then you just kind of, or you could trade them for other things. Yeah. So I was doing like mail order distro for other labels. Um, and I would send 10 records to like, you know, uh, less than Jake guys. And they would, and Vinny would sell stuff through fuel by ramen back then in the day. Right. And I yeah. would sell Few by ramen stuff like 10 of these or and so it's like okay yeah that was that whole lifestyle to that but mm-hmm. but yeah the, the the label in that you could even call it a label all it was was a real it was a name <laughs> was uh was that's what it was it was me and my apartment so then what like what led from so you're doing that you're releasing some some small releases but then what led to you managing artists was it just looking for kind of a way another way to get into the scene or was that something mm-hmm. that you kind of had in your mind no i i had no idea what mm-hmm. management even meant um right but i got engaged and i needed to get a real job <laughs> so i couldn't be waiting tables at night and having punk rock bands crash in my apartment you know right. yeah and so i was like oh shit i gotta get a real job and i'm like wait i don't know how to do anything right. except <laughs> this and this doesn't really translate to a job right. so a friend of mine was like, Hey, this management company is looking for, um, somebody who knows kind of indie rock to manage this band on sub pop, like do the day to day for the band on this band on sub pop. I'm like, I'll take, I mean, I'll take the interview. Thanks. Yeah. And for, I don't know to this day why they hired me, but I got a job and I'll just, I never forget. Like, like the first day they walked in my, one of my bosses walked in with a stack of papers like this thick. And they're like, 
hey, here's the bands. Um, these are all the, the contracts for the shows. Uh, you have to advance all the shows. I'm like, okay, cool. Got it. Thanks. And as soon as my boss walks out, I call him up and I go, what does advance mean? Yeah. <laughs> I had no idea. Yeah. And so I like, had to figure out, thank God they gave me like room to like screw up a lot. Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, that's how I figured out management. I worked there for two and a half years. And during that time, Vagrant was starting to kind of take off, not take off, but it was, we, we had put out the face face live record. Cause mm-hmm. I, should back up one step. I man, I start. I signed face to face when I was at that management company. Right. So that was my first client. Client. Um, well, my second client. Client. And then, yeah, it was. Uh, I worked there for two and a half years, and and we put out the face face live record, and we put out before your punk. And I'm like, I think I want to go do Vagrant. Yeah. And I still want to manage, so I took face to face with me, and um, and the other band was managing Pond, and I took them with me and I started Heart Eight mm-hmm. like in the same office as John was running Vagrant, um, doing all the sales and stuff. So we it was just the two of us in a room. So it was Heart Eight and Vagrant, but it was two guys. Yeah. And then, yeah. yeah. So let's so the face to face live record. How you guys doing? Hello, hello. We're face to face. Thanks a lot for coming out.
that's is that the first official kind of like release would you say under vagrant that wasn't you know kind of the the seven inches and what you'd been putting out before um that was the first well let's see let me just let me no the first it was the first full-length album by one band gotcha we had two compilations out we had our first thing was a box set of seven inches called west or south and that had face face on it so it was like face face down by law sam i am jay church fluff um all west coast bands so mm-hmm. that came out and that did pretty well we sold five thousand copies of the cd which was insane for us and then after that we put out before you were punk and that ended up selling kind of 150,000 copies so it's just right. crazy back i mean those numbers were just insane and yeah. so but that had like you know the, between the two of them the sequel and that one it was like Face Face, No Effects, Lag Wagon, Blink-182, Unwritten Law, yeah. Rocket, The Get Up Kids, like, you know. This, this was yeah. before you were punk? Yeah. 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 Because my, my introduction to the label was the Five Years on the Streets compilation right. that would come out, but uh, which a number of those bands were also on there. But how did, um so how did the Face to Face live record come about? Because were they not signed to another label at that point in time? They were. They were on A&M Records. They were on yeah. the major but punk rock, uh, punk live rock doesn't care. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, and, well, major labels don't care about punk rock live records. They're like, sure, go ahead. Yeah. Put that on an indie. Yeah. And, and so I was like, okay. Okay. Funny story. I don't, I don't know. I think I maybe told this like once before somebody, but so we had put out, I want to make sure I'm right. Well, no, we hadn't put out, we, we ended up putting out a face to face live 10 inch, after that called Econo Live that came out right before the self-titled record okay. um, on Vagrant. But um but yeah, no, we they were on AM and they put out Big Choice and they hadn't put out self-titled yet. And we were trying to bridge the time between the two. And um and Westwood One used to be a thing where they would come record shows with like whole truck and you get like 24 track everything. Okay. Yeah. And so they recorded, we did two nights yeah, we did two nights at the Roxy in LA, or two shows in one night, and um, they recorded it. We weren't planning on putting a live record out, but we asked them, we're like, yeah, you can, after we broadcast it, you can put it out as a live record. So we just asked them. And then, so we were going to do it, right? And then, uh, and then on the way back to the East Coast, the truck with all the tape burned down, got an accident and burned. So all the tapes were gone. Yeah. So we ended up rebooking shows, recording it. And, uh, and yeah, that, that they just let us put it out, but I was like, we can't put out this. I mean, you know, that was a really big band in our scene. And I'm like, it's just, they're my client. And this is like, it's just me and my partner in a room. Yeah. We're going to put out a live record. I was like, this could screw up everything for all of us, my <laughs> client, me, everybody. Yeah. And, uh, and it almost, it, it could have in many ways, long story short, I was not even thinking about putting it on Vader. So yeah. I called out Mike and I'm like, Hey, would you want to put out face face live record? And Mike, I'll never forget it. Cause Mike's like, I don't really believe in live records. Which, and, is, and he, hilarious. <laughs> which is totally hilarious. Like, eh, I don't really believe in live records. Of course he ended up putting out a hundred of them with live and a dive. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And I heard they suck live and everything, but face to face was like the first band from our generation of bands really that I can remember put out a live record. Yeah. Like thought of like as a rock star bullshit thing to do. Yeah. You know, even though, like the descendants put out a live record and, Right. But that was 10 years before. But yeah, that's how it came. I offered it to Mike, and Mike's like, nah, it's kind of a metal thing. 
was so, like, oh, I guess we're stuck with it. Yeah. And we well, and two things about that that I that I find kind of great is that um, first, it's easily one of my favorite live records of all time. Like I think it's I think it's so great. And then second, uh, with Fat Mike saying he didn't really believe in live records, and then you mentioning live in a dive. So what I love about the face to face live in a dive. So not only not only did he say no to releasing that one, but then years <laughs> later would actually release a face to face live record. But what I do love about that live in a dive record is that outside of I think maybe one song, so all yeah, or, yeah, I was like it's all it's all different. So I'm like, man, that's so cool. You just put those things on back to back, and you know, yeah. you're good to go. But yeah, I agree. I thought it was great. I yeah. thought it was great. And, and Fat Mike's awesome. He's just, I just love that he's so blunt and honest. He's just like, yeah. nah, I don't <laughs> want to put that out. <laughs> the rules. But it was just always a good story. Yeah. Um, so at that point, though, are you kind of going, okay, I think we can make this label actually a thing? Or is, or is your focus still kind of... Like where where are you at in that point? Because you're talking about not wanting to necessarily put this out. You even offered it to other labels. Mm-hmm. You put it out. Now you're out there as like, okay, we're not just doing compilations and and seven inches anymore. We've actually got something here. So yeah, uh, where does that kind of put you at that time? It um, it, we're I'm, we're still not thinking it's going to be a, a thing. Certainly not the magnitude that it became. Obviously, we we were ambitious. We wanted it to do well, but we weren't like. You know, we had, we were still very much like hand to mouth, you know, and then but then that record sold really well. And before your punk sold really well. And then then, you know, I found out that the Get Up Kids were looking for a manager. So right. I went after them. Not again, not for the label, but as a management client. And I yeah. ended up signing as a management client. And then six months later, they end up signing the Vagrant because everything had fallen apart with major label negotiations that I was having on their behalf. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so both those records, our two biggest records were accidents kind of, you know? Yeah. So do we want to, I mean, we could talk a little bit about something to write home about.
I'm choking on kombucha right now. Oh yeah. <laughs> I'm like it's, it's like moonshine kombucha it looks yeah, like. Yeah, it's pretty it's yeah. it's something but it's it's stuck in my throat right now. Um Yeah, okay, so get up kids, you're managing them and then decide, you know what, let's just put this record out and it ends up being at that point in time the biggest thing you've released. <laughs> Is that like were you kind of like were you expecting that in any sort of way or was that just kind of like nobody oh, was dang. expecting that. Yeah. I was I knew the record was incredible. Right. But but you got to remember at that point and it wasn't it was kind of a little bit like let's just put this out but it was more like you know we were we were so locked in myself and the band on like we got to get this record out and mm-hmm. we can't dick around with this major labels right cuz we we were worn the band was worn out and by by this and so it was just like i was like I got a crazy idea. Why don't we just make this insanely good deal for you guys for one record mm-hmm. and we'll put this record out and then, um, and then we can go do a major label deal after if you guys want to do that or whatever. And so we gave them their own imprint, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, I, I, but like the, you know, the best selling records in our scene back then was like, like, you know, like, uh, God, um, nothing feels good was um Mm -hmm. let's see it was like the biggest records from our world were like promise ring i think it did thirty thousand, right you know um and so the get kids came out and that first year did one hundred and fifty thousand, and then went on to sell three hundred thousand plus yeah those were insane numbers you know uh for an indie rock band much less an indie rock band on basically a bedroom label yeah you know, and then things just went bananas. So I like, I mean, you hear stories about different labels where they all of a sudden have that one release that just like blows up. And it, cause I even think like with the get up kids, if I remember with four minute mile, was that not causing, were they on doghouse at that time? They were. Was like, did that not, that caused doghouse trouble, didn't it? Like, cause they couldn't keep up with the demand of that record at that time. Was that ever an issue with you guys? Like with this record being like, Oh man, like it's selling faster than we can actually get out. Not, it wasn't an issue per se. Like we, we never ran into stock problems and I'm not even sure. I, well, yeah, I think, I think the band's complaint with Doghouse was that they couldn't find the records yeah. on the road yeah. when they were on tour or that they couldn't take them on tour with them in the quantities that they wanted to. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and I, I, I don't even remember honestly how much, like there was a depletion of stock or I don't, I don't really remember the backstory about that, but, um, but the thing with us wasn't about, cause we kept in the stock really well because when we, when we signed the get up kids, it was kind of this, um, thing where like, okay, this is the biggest thing we're going to sign. Like, even if we sold 20,000, it would have been the biggest band on our, you know, on our, well, not the only band, because we had No Motive already, mm-hmm. had just come out. Yeah. So we had No Motive, and we had a band Boxer that yeah. we put out that broke up five seconds after the record came out. But it's a brilliant <laughs> record if anybody yeah. is looking for a gem. Such yeah. a good record. Yeah. Um, so we had two bands we put out, and then the Get Up Kid, but we're like, we need to sail like a professional because we're not professionals at this. Mm. So then we went and hired a guy named James Cho from tooth and nail who was, was really good at selling the tooth and nail catalog. Yeah. So 
we had enough money to either sign the getup kids or hire James Cho. And one of them didn't make sense without the other one. So we're like, let's just do both. Right. Just take a chance. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. My partner's parents put their house up when we took a mortgage out. They, they, they lent us the money, um, from their house. And so we signed get up kids and we hired sales guy. So that's why we did that. Um, yeah. Well, like that's like, that's, and that's interesting because like tooth and nail was another label I was thinking of when I think it was life in general by MXPX came out. I know like it, it almost sunk them because it was too big than they were really capable of handling at the time. Right. Uh, I think, I think sub pop went through the same thing with bleach by Nirvana. Right. Like, so it's just interesting to hear those stories. But, uh, if you just go, apparently if you go and you get the guy who's been through it before and knows how to get (laughs) through it, hopefully avoid those mistakes. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's it's brilliant. It's brilliant. If you have someone willing to lend your money out of their house, (laughs) then you're totally stoked. But yeah, that, that, that made our, all those, confluent circumstances made our label like the generosity of my partner's parents yeah. the band taking a chance on us and us being able to hire a professional yeah. was kind of the perfect storm for that record With- and they made the, the best record of the era as far as I'm concerned yeah. Yeah, I mean it's it's a great record. Um with, you know, the Get Up Kids doing what they're doing at that time. I was actually I I tweeted earlier today I was uh I just finished listening to like part 2 of the Get Up Kids episode like for the vagrant podcast uh-huh. and i was like man i know the get up kids got back together and have actually since released some of their best material mm-hmm. but hearing like them talk about the breakup it's just like heartbreaking so it's like just it's just kind of went funny through it. it was tough yeah was but tough. then to be where we are now going like i know i love some of the records that they've released like even like their latest record is probably it's right up there from one of my favorite get up kids records yeah it's good and it's just funny because, yeah, listening to this, I'm like, I know they get back together. I know the end of this story. But, man, but still, yeah. I'm, I'm feeling it, guys. They're breaking down. Um, yeah. But as, as as the Get Up Kids are doing their thing, could you feel like that the – what what did that wave kind of feel like? Because obviously you're not – you're not at the crest of that wave yet, right? Like it's about to get even bigger, but, but could you feel like something was going on or at that point, did it still just kind of feel like, okay, this record's doing well, but you know, everything else is just kind of doing its thing. Uh, A little both. Like, mm, you know what? That thing was such a wildfire right out of the box, Yeah, but it was about us and the band and us just putting all of our folks on the band. It wasn't like, Ooh, we're going to brand this and build our label out and become the next whatever mm-hmm. on, off of this band's back. It wasn't like we were looking at them as our Nirvana and we were going to be sub pop. Right. It was just like, you know, it was the four guys in the band, well, five guys in the band and, and uh, me and John and, and Kevin, who uh, was our the full, all of our staff. And then James, the guy I was telling you about, it was just, that was us. Right. Yeah. So it was like, we're all in together, but then, as that record just kept growing and growing and getting bigger, like most times records come out and then they go like this and then they kind of find their, you know, but this thing just, just came out and just kept going like this. And then it just stayed at a high level. And then the bigger the scene got around it, obviously with all the bands that came after it, that thing just kept getting lifted and, Mm -hmm. you know, we couldn't stop it. So yes, the short answer is we felt momentum about a month after that record came out with, all of a sudden bands are taking our calls like who would never have even taken our call yeah. six weeks before yeah, or yeah. calling us going, Hey, do you guys want to sign us? We're like, yeah, you know, <laughs> it was pretty cool. So at what time did you start? Like, cause there's so, 
because I know obviously you brought in a number of bands, eventually the likes of obviously like Alkaline Trio and uh, Hot Rod Circuit and like bands that has, had established their names kind of prior and outside of Vagrant to an extent that you brought in. Like when did that start happening or was that kind of after, you know, another like, the, well, because Dashboard's Places You've Come to Fear the Most kind of comes what another i guess almost two years later a year and a half later after get up kids Mm -hmm. um so at what point did you start kind of bringing in some of those those bands saves the day and stuff like that um pretty pretty immediately thereafter yeah uh because it and it was because they saw because all those bands were fans of the get up kids and they saw the get up kids what they were doing and and they were like well, let's see, we're on an indie label. They went to a smaller indie label, and it seems like they're doing really well. Maybe we yeah. should get the tires on this. So, like, Alpine Trio had, they were, they'd already put out two full lengths plus the, the B-Sides collection yeah. um, on Asian Man, and they had sold 10,000 copies of each. And then, but, and I, I, for the life of me, I couldn't understand why that band wasn't huge already. Right. Yeah. Because to me, they were like, that's, Jawbreaker reincarnated in sure. those first couple records, yeah. and I put them on the face-to-face tour, the Econolive face-to-face tour we talked about, and like, yeah, they were still totally unknown outside of that uh, small circle, and especially obviously in Chicago. But so we were actually talking to them about putting out uh, maybe I'll Catch Fire, mm-hmm. um, and they were like, you know what, we're going to give this record to Mike, and then we want to talk to you once this record comes out. And I was like, cool. So like a year later, we kept in touch or whatever. A year later, they, you know, they fulfilled uh, what they told they were going to do. Mike and Mike was like, yeah, I'm not moving out of my garage. I like selling 10,000 records. I like doing that. God bless Mike Park. He's like, right. <laughs> guys, such a quality human being. But he's like, this is what I do. And this and you guys should probably go. Like, because yeah. I'm going to keep doing this. And if you guys want to get bigger, you should go. And so that's how we, that's how that went. And then, so again, it was like, wait, they went from an indie label to an indie label instead of indie to major. So then hot rod saw that. And we talked to Fred at triple crown and same kind of thing. They, they owed Fred one more record. So we helped Fred kind of, I think market that record knowing that they were coming to vagrant. So they came and then, yeah, saves the day. We called them the day that through being cool came out. Right. Because we heard that record and we were like, Holy shit. Yeah. And then, so we called them and it turns out they were, they had a similar kind of contractual situation with UVR where there was like a buyout. Right. So, so it was, it was saves the day, hot rod, the offline trio rocket right. and dashboard all in like a two month span that we signed. So it was like, bam, 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 bam. Right. Insanity. <laughs> but so, yeah. So, and then like dashboard places you come to fear the most comes out. So this is Plaster tented from your fist in 
like i guess numbers wise did that did that record sell more initially than get up kids or was it kind of like get up kids exploded and then dashboard kind of came along it was um well it went get up kids exploded then um from there it was the alkaline trio was the first band of ours that debuted on the billboard top 200 they came in at 199 so it was like get up kids and then the alkaline trio and then saves the day no i'm sorry then dashboard but dashboard didn't come out big it right. it came out solid and then just grew and grew and grew until yeah it's almost a million copies now but it was like did like you know seven hundred thousand copies but it was mm-hmm. it was never had that huge week it went i'll never forget the first week it did 2500 copies the second week it did 2500 copies and then it just stayed at 2500 copies for like two years hmm. and then as everything else started to just blow up around him and, and then, then it started to take off. But for like two years, it was a slow, you know, slow, steady climb yeah. to get to a hundred thousand records. Yeah. No, it's, uh, that's, that record's still kind of like, it's funny. Cause, um, when it, when it came out, I remember thinking, okay, at that point in time, I'd been listening, you know, mainly. And I think a lot of people have the same story, but bands right like full bands with full loud guitars and sounds and then all of a sudden this acoustic record comes out and there was two things that like threw me off about it one like oh i'm listening to and loving an acoustic record which at that time was was kind of a little bit different for me i was you know a young kid who was punk rock or 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 bust and then two the you know there was a time maybe it still happens but where punk albums would have like the closer would be like an acoustic song sort of thing right but it would just be an acoustic guitar so then hearing like it's not just acoustic he has a full band like what's happening here because in my brain i'm trying to wrap around going 
A, I'm listening to something that isn't loud guitars and someone yelling angrily at me. And B, there's actually a full band with this guy. So um, was like, was that decision made? Because Swiss Army Romance, that, was, was, that wasn't released on Vagrant, right? It eventually was. Right. But it first came out on Fiddler Records. Yeah. And, and so then she sold it to Drive Through. Yes. And so it, it had just come out. It had just been out for a week on drive through when we signed Chris to mm. Vagrant. Yeah. And then, then we ended up getting it back from drive through a year or two later. So, because that, if I recall, it's been a while since I listened to Swiss army romance, but it's just him, right? Uh huh. Yeah. So like the decision, and, to go... and there's, there's a female backing vocals. Right. Yeah. But, yeah. but like the decision to go full band, was that anything that came from you guys or was that just where he was going with this? That's just where he was going. Gotcha. And I but, mean, yeah, always with him. It just he follows his muse, you know. That's yeah. what's so great about Chris. Like yeah. he, he didn't try to go against the tide. He just right. <laughs> that's what he is. Yeah, you know. And and, this- and the funny thing that you say is like, yeah, it's it. At first blush, it doesn't feel like punk rock. Chris yeah. is so so um, committed to punk rock. Yeah, like. The guy is a musicologist when it comes to all things yeah, punk rock. Yeah. Like incredible depth of knowledge and of old bands, new bands, like friends bands. Like he he completely bought in as a skateboarding teenager and yeah. never, you know, it's one of those things like we were talking about. It's like that was his calling. He knew and he he was all in. Yeah, I, it's, it's funny because I, I love that about him in just because I can remember, you know, getting into Dashboard. Uh, and, and then go into shows and, you know, if people, you know, they would, the, the gatekeepers or whatever you want to call them, you know, would oftentimes be like, oh, that's that like sad emo shit, right? That's not punk rock or blah, 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 blah. And I was always like, okay, does that, A, does that really matter? But then B, just to hear like whenever I've heard him in interviews or whatever, just like you mentioned, like the knowledge and how much he fully buys into, you know, everything about about the scene that he grew up in is, is pretty rad. And I do remember hearing him describe his music at one point in time. He's like, I don't know what's so different about it. I'm literally just like playing, you know, like, like hardcore strumming patterns on an acoustic guitar. Like he literally described what he was playing as I'm, I'm playing at what I was playing before. It's just now it's unplugged sort of thing. And I was like, right. all right, cool. Like maybe that, maybe that is what, you know, kind of attracted me to it was, and a lot of people to it was, I mean, obviously his, his lyrics and vocals are very raw, but like musically, yeah, if you could still identify that in the sound, like obviously like where he was oh, coming from, sure. right? For sure. So, um, but then yeah. you, oh yeah, what were you going to say? Uh, I was going to say the first tour that, that Dashboard did um, when he was on Vagrant was, was the opening slot for Face to Face's headlining tours, Face to Face, Snapcase, H2O, Dashboard. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, and so he he got like either totally abused or people were like, "Holy shit, I love this. What is this?" Yeah, but, yeah. Well, and and I've heard him share stories about about that tour, and I can't remember if it was if he said it was Trevor Keith or if it was Toby Morris. But anyway, he was sharing a story about you know there was like one night where he's up there playing, and they're literally like throwing money at him, you know, oh, like like yeah, like so- change, right, quarters <laughs> yeah, at him. I it. Yeah, exactly. He's like. And then Toby would go out later in the show and he'd be wearing a dashboard confessional t-shirt and just being like, and he said, you know what, for the most part on that tour, you went out every night and people hated you. But by the end of your set and by the end of the night, you had sold them. 
you yep. know, you had sold them on what you're doing. And I'm like, that's, that's awesome. Cause like, um, yeah, no, that, that, that record is one that I still go back to quite regularly. Um, totally. yeah, so good. What about, uh, so you mentioned saves the day briefly, how you contacted them. Would you say the day that through being cool came out? out? Yeah. So, cool so let's talk about their album. Stay what you are. shift that 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 album took Mm -hmm. like as a label i'm assuming i I always assume you know with when you hear the story of independent labels versus major labels that the independent labels are just always like okay you you do you like when Mm -hmm. it comes to what you're putting out so um where like when when they started putting that record together and you were first hearing the songs off of it 
what were your initial thoughts with what they were doing? Because it, it was a little different than Through Being Cool, which, mm-hmm. I mean, Through Being Cool was a little different than, uh, what was the name Slow of the record? Down. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, like, I mean, they, they'd kind of been progressing, but were you kind of sitting there listening going, okay, this is a little, this is a little different? Um, not, no, uh-uh. I, because you got to remember when, when they made Through Being Cool, they were teenagers. And when they made Can't Slow Down, they were babies. I mean, yeah. they were like, this was 15. <laughs> Yeah. So it made sense. And to me, Stay What You Are was a perfect evolution from Cancel Down to Through Being Cool to Stay What You Are. I thought it was a perfect creative arc without being like, oh, they're getting all adult now. And right. it was like, it was like a, you know, it's, it's crazy as, as I'm talking about it, even like between the Alkaline Trio with Theater Infirmary, Saves the Day, uh, Dashboard and the Get Up Kids, they all made their best records, of, certainly to that point in their career, and a lot of people would argue the best records period in their career, mm-hmm. all within 12 months of each other. Yeah, it's insane. <laughs> it's insane. So honestly, we were lucky to be there. You know, it's like yeah. we were lucky to get struck by lightning. But, yeah. every, but, but they also pushed each other, you know, creatively. It's like, oh, and th- that's like having one of the, that's like having a, a sports team that just everybody makes the other person level up, you know? Mm-hmm. So, but that's just incredible. You can't, you know, yes, we let the bands do whatever they want. We give very little, if any input creatively ever, because that's not my place. Um, but it's all on them. They made those, all four of those, those bands made those records. Yeah. Like just landmark records, as far as I'm concerned, even if they weren't on my label, you right. know, was, so was stay what you are. Did it, did it kind of come out as quick? Cause you said like with dashboard, it was sort of like a slow burn that just wouldn't stop sort of thing yeah. versus, you know, the get up kids, which kind of just came out of the gate quick. So with, with saves the day, was it, was it out of the gate quick? Cause it, that's an interesting record to me because I, I really liked it, but then, and I, again, I just relate things to conversations I remember having with people and, you know, like the few people who I talked about it, it going to shows with, they were always kind of like, Oh, it's okay. But I really liked the album before. Right. So, mm-hmm. Um, did it kind of take off pretty quick? Came out like a house on fire. Yeah. Right out of the box. It was the biggest band that we ever, biggest first week that we'd ever had to that point. Hmm. Because, because through being cool, the, the band was the biggest band that we had signed. Right. If, if you don't count Rocket, who was like legendarily big, but like sure. big and on the rise, Saves the Day had sold 30,000 records on the, on through being cool, 30 or 40,000 when we signed them. Mm-hmm. So, and I, and they, they debuted in the top 100. They mm-hmm. debuted at number 99. So they came out and I think it did 15,000 the first week. And then it just went, you know, yeah. it's probably gold now or close yeah. to it. But yeah. it's, uh, yeah, that thing, they, they, they instantly became the biggest band on the label the day that record came out. That's cool. Yeah. See, like that's something that I would, would not have guessed. Cause like, uh, oftentimes, obviously, um, something right home about gets referenced all the time and that being kind of the first big one, but then dashboard was massive. And so to hear that, like saves the day was the biggest band on the label at that time. That's, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, I mean, they headlined the vagrant America tour. Yeah. That's, they I guess it. that's fair. I mean, I'm in yeah. Canada. There was no vagrant Canada tours. No, we didn't do <laughs> However, we did do face to face saves the day. Gob. Yeah. And Monique across nice. Canada. Ah, yeah. see like what, Dang, that's because I saw a, a slight variation of that tour, I guess, because I saw Face to Face with Monine 
And brand new, I think, was on that tour, right? They might have been on the Calgary show, though, because I, I think, think that was kind of collided with Guttermouth, right? Yeah. So I was trying to figure out who was on the Guttermouth show and who was on, like, it was all ended up being one big show. But because I know, I think there were three bands on that tour. Did they do Riddling Kids or were they with Guttermouth? Yeah. Oh, no, no. We took Riddling Kids. Okay. Brand new split with uh, Brand New did the US portion of the tour and then Riddling gotcha. joined us okay, right yeah. after Brand New came off. You're right. Great call. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. All I remember from that show, I shouldn't say all I remember, like face-to-face was fucking fantastic. But while, I think it was while Guttermouth was playing, I was just out uh, talking with Kenny uh, from Monin, and I shared this story where it was like, because, I mean, the album, um, Are We Really Happy With Who We Are Right Now? That's what they were touring at that time. Yep. And there's a song called Start Angry, Get Mad, and there's a line in it where he says, Get Angry, but mm-hmm. I always heard it as get gangrene. So then we just had this, <laughs> we just had this in length conversation, like this, this long conversation about wearing wet socks. So <laughs> that sounds like something Kenny talks about on a regular man, that guy, actually it's, okay. I saw, I saw Monine and dashboard. Uh, this would be a couple of years ago. Now they played the Calgary stampede. It was like this mm-hmm. random show where I was like, I don't go to the stampede, but I'm going for that. And cause I hadn't seen Monine in years. Like they had, I don't know if they ever officially broke up, but they definitely weren't touring regularly. Right. And right. Uh, so I was like, oh, I'm going to see this show. And that dude still, like they were one of the best live shows from, you know, when I was growing up or whatever. And so I was like, what are they like now? And what are they like playing at the That's Calgary sick. Stampede? Oh, he's still jumping off 15 foot stacks. And the yeah. Whole deal. I mean, he's got less hair on his head, but, <laughs> <laughs> but he like, there's this, there's a spot in the show where he like came down off the stage and just like, kind of got everyone to move and create like this long sort of aisle where he started at one end, ran to the other, did a front flip, you know, threw his arms in the air, like, Hey, then ran back on the stage. And then they continued playing the passing of America. I'm like, all yeah. right. Like they're insane. I, man, I love that band so much. I love those, the guys in that band so much. Yeah. I was so stoked signing them. It so was like, how did that come together? Signing, signing Monin. Um, Somebody from Canada sent me the, small chairs, the EP, right. Or the, that first one. Yeah. And I was like, this is awesome. And yeah. they're like, yeah, you know, they're, they're, they're starting to make a little noise up here in, in Brampton. Was that where, where they're uh, somewhere? They're from Ontario. I don't know. Yeah. yeah Ontario. Brampton, but... was, I just remember I went to see them at call the office and, um, and I loved them. And I was like, I, I called them. I was like, you know, how do we get you to sign to vagrant? And, yeah. and, then they, I went up and met them, and I fell in love with them as people, and I friggin' could not stop listening to music. And then um, I remember they sent me the song, the track, Are You Really Happy? Yeah. And, and I'm like, holy shit. You said you wanted, you said you needed, what you don't know is I know that you can't
have that same feeling as when I heard Four Minute Mile at a Get Up Kids. Yeah. And when it just comes in with just that guitar, that oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> so oh I know. It's it's, ang- it's aggressive without being angry, but yeah. it's angry, obviously. But it still has so much heart. Like that song, I'll never forget driving around Toronto and just drinking mad Starbucks and just listening to it over and over, <laughs> and like so jacked. Yeah. Like, that's how money came about. That was that was a fun time as like a Canadian, a fan of Canadian music or the scene up here because obviously Monine and then Alexis on Fire, mm-hmm. um, and up here especially. I don't remember. I don't know that Monine really got regular regular radio play up here. Maybe on some stations they did, but like Alexis on Fire was like Huge. on yeah they were on rock radio stations, which blew my mind. It still blows my mind a little bit that that was ever something that was on the radio, but right. um, I mean, I love it. Like, Oh uh, yeah. The band's great. I mean, we ended up signing them and yeah. actually when I was up in Canada on a Monique trip was when um, I met with Dallas and Joel yeah. and like, Hey, Dallas has a side project. Would you guys want to put this out? And it's the first city color record. Yeah. And I, I was at mastering with them while they were mastering them and I mastering it. And I remember hearing save your scissors. And I was like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we want to put this out. So yeah. then we ended up putting that out, and then we'll sign Alexis on fire after that. And yeah. I just, I love me some Canadians. I don't know. Yeah, what there you go. The the great thing about like City and Color, um, that first record was it. Sometimes I think is that what it was called, the first one. Anyway. Uh, was that what the title of the album? I can't remember, <laughs> but but that that record, uh, I can just remember the first time hearing it, going like. I mean, I knew who Dallas was, and I was like, "Oh, this is cool!" Like it reminds it reminded me for obvious reasons of of Dashboard. Like both those dudes, like both those guys, can sing their butts off. And then on top of that, you know, it's like this for sure, still like punk and hardcore influenced acoustic music. It was great, but then he just like flips the script with "Show Me Your Love." I'm terrible <laughs> with album titles, but like all of a sudden he's like. Oh, by the way, I really like folk music. (laughs) And then I was like blown away with that record. Yep. Um, Which there's, this is, this is, there you go. It's on the wall. I don't know if you can see it. There it is. There we go. The mic's in the way. Dallas's head. And then I'm assuming Dallas's skull. (laughs) So, yeah. He's so talented, man. He is so talented. For sure. I was just listening to his, his latest record earlier today. And I'm like, I can remember the first time I heard. So he was on a track by, I mean, it's not a band. It was just one guy that was doing a project called Never Ending White Lights. And then mm-hmm. Dallas was on on a song called The Grace. And I remember going, oh, is this what City and Color would sound like as a full band? It was just like this ambient, melodic guitar, sort of like it sounded awesome. And then when he first started actually going electric, I was kind of like, uh, I don't know. But the more you listen like that, dude just makes beautiful music. <laughs> Top oh, to bottom, but um, super talent. Yeah, let's. The last record that you sent me for the five records that shaped Vagrant Records is one that, until you sent me the list, I had never listened to it before. Uh, so it, it kind of signals, I guess, maybe. Like when I looked and saw when it came out, I was like, oh, okay. But Paul Westerberg, stereo mono. Baby learns to crawl, watching daddy's skin. Learns to fall, get up again. Baby learns to cry, watching mama smile in the mirror. Can you hear? Baby learns to swear with your hair. Learns to love. 
watching TV Baby learns to cope with what she sees And the mirror don't go near Baby learns to hide down on your knee Learns to pray when somebody sleeps Baby, don't you say you love me in the mirror. One last crushing blow, final crashing ball. And it's always time to go. As you're inching to the door Let's go To live, watch daddy's life. Baby learns to give everything away. Baby learns to cry, and me it's alright. In the mirror, learn to crawl, watch daddy's skin. Baby learns to crawl, daddy's skin. What I understand is kind of a confusing title because one of those records he actually, quote unquote, like released under a different name, right? Yeah, yeah. Like that's a... When I tried to look it up on Apple Music, I was like, I only get, I think maybe Stereo, or one of them anyways, only shows up under Paul Westerberg. And then Stereo, yeah. Yeah, as I kind of dug before. in, I was like, oh, he's got this whole other like, you know, pseudonym or whatever that he's... <laughs> yeah, that you would just have to, I couldn't even like begin to explain what working with Westerberg is like in that sense. We already had the record and yeah. it was going to be called stereo mono because, and it actually made perfect sense because half of it was recorded in stereo and the other CD, it was a double album. The other yeah. one was in mono. Yeah. And like, I'm not kidding. Like six weeks before the album was released, he's like, Hey, I want to put out 10,000 copies of just the mono release. And I want to put it out under grandpa boy. <laughs> and that guy could have said anything. Actually, there wasn't, there was a couple ideas he pitched me. I'm like, dude, we can't do that. We'll get arrested. <laughs> but, uh, he was like, so I want to put this out. I want to put it out as Grandpa Boy, and then we'll put out Stereo Mono. I'm like, okay. <laughs> it's like, no to my hero. Yeah, so, right. So yeah, that's that's how it ended up, you know, with uh, with that. But that record, yeah. Yeah, you mentioned your hero. So of course he's from the Replacements, mm-hmm. uh, who. I don't know if I mentioned it off the top, but Tim was one of the records that you had said, you know, kind of got you interested or kind of made you know this was the route you were going. So yeah. how, how did that come together then getting Paul on the label? Crazy, crazy. I st- honestly, to this day, I still have to pinch myself, you know, that we got to put out four Paul Westerberg records. You know, it's like crazy. But how that came about was, okay, remember how I said there was that, that gap of time between me being like 15 and me being 19 when 
in the mid eighties when punk rock really didn't exist as yeah. I knew it. And there was no music that I could really like get that passionate about. Yeah. Uh, except then I discovered the replacements and who's screwed Yeah. And, and early soul asylum. And, uh, like it was like, Holy shit. And yeah, Tim, I wore that record out hmm. easily. One of my top five favorite albums of all time. And that band just represented everything to me in a more, in a less like teenager, you know, like you were saying, you were just a punk rock kid who, you know, who was going yeah. to hardcore shows like we all did. My hard, hardcore was Black Flag and that whole world. But then as I was 19 years old now and I'm in college, it's making a lot more sense to my sensibilities because I don't want to, you know, run around with my friends and drink beers out in the parking lot and then do all that shit anymore. It's like, now I'm kind of like that at that age is especially that's like 10 years ago, three years in a teenager's life is like, Oh, right. You know, it's yeah. Different. So yeah, that's when I discovered the replacements. So they filled, they not only filled that hole that was left, but they expanded so much for me in terms of the musicality, the lyrics, the attitude, the way they did their business, everything about it. I was like, it reminded me of a more grown up version of what SST was to me as a kid. Mm -hmm. You know, so I used to line up SST records and just like put all the logos right next to each other. It was just sick. I, I right. loved that. <laughs> but the Twin Tone was the same thing with the replacements. Yeah. And they were also such a white hot mess intentionally. Like, you know, they're big drinkers and they were just, natural attitudes fuck you about everything we're gonna do it exactly how we want it and we're yeah. get out of our way while we shoot ourselves in the foot so there's something that's appealing about that to a you know a 19 year old kid who was raised on punk rock so mm -hmm. just everything about it but they didn't have they had the only other band that had the kind of heart the replacements had was the descendants because right. the descendants were love songs they didn't yeah, yeah. Yeah. write me head punk rock yeah. you know but then westerberg took it another step where it wasn't like silly for the most part, it wasn't silly punk rock songs. It was, it was post punk without that Southern California kind of sound. Mm -hmm. And it just was like, Holy shit, you can be like this bruised lipped kind of underdog, you know, kind of, kind of uh, rough around the edges and, and, and pissed, but still have a heart and still have your heart broken. And so if you look at kind of what I would sign later in life to the label, whether it be dashboard or the ghetto kids or say the lyrically, a lot of that owes to the replacements. Right. Yeah. So, but how did, like, did you just call Paul Westerberg one day, like, to no. get him on the label? Like, where did that kind of come from? I would never even have thought of calling Paul. <laughs> I mean, that, you know, you might as well have asked me to call Elvis or something. Right. I, yeah. Way that was going to happen. Um, it, it is an interesting story, though, because um remember that the management company i said i had to get a job at yeah. way back in the day out of college um when i was working there he paul was looking for a manager hmm. and so my boss was like hey you're a replacements fan right want to come in and meet uh paul westerberg i was like huh? <gasps> yeah <laughs> so we have a meeting with him and it was it was not the best time for paul because it was right when the goo goo dolls and soul asylum and those bands were blowing up with basically what the replacements blueprint was. Mm -hmm. right? But yeah. they, so they took the replacement sound and made it huge. So Paul was pretty bitter at that time. And he was signing to, he was about to put out a solo record and he, and he comes in and he's like, he's just, honestly, he was just being like, so sought out, just an asshole. 
in this yeah. meeting. And he's just like, he's like, I need a producer to, to write me hits and to get me on the radio and all this kind of stuff. And I was just going, I'm like my whole world's crumbling around me. Right. I was like, Oh <laughs> God, please stop. And so, um, so the meeting wraps up not well. And I go back to my like corner that they stuck me in, in the office and, and my boss has kind of just shut the door, but, and Paul hadn't left yet. So he's wandering through the halls of our office and he comes into my corner and I, I still have it. Oh, it's upstairs, but I still have this Xerox copy framed of a quote that he said in a spin magazine article from 1991, right when I started Vagrant, where I cut it out and photocopied it and put it in a frame. And I've had it for 25 years, but I had it above. It was the only thing I had on my wall at at this (laughs) office. And it says, I never trust anyone who goes in the studio and gets exactly what they want. That might be their art, but it's usually shitty rock and roll. Right. (laughs) And so, but then, so think about what he had just said about how he needs somebody to write songs with and hits and all this stuff. And then so Paul wanders into my office or my my corner. It wasn't even an office. And um, he sees it on the wall and he's like, you can see like it dawned on him. Like, Oh boy. He's like, huh? Should have probably come in here first. I'm like, it's cool, man. Like I'm just, (laughs) I'm about like crying in my, so he leaves fast forward seven years later. Right. I've, vagrants going and we were like at our kind of apex right then and i didn't like the song i didn't like paul's solo records i didn't like the right. single soundtrack that he did dyslexic heart i didn't like i liked i liked a couple of songs off off of each album mm-hmm. like good day is an amazing song but i didn't like his last it was overproduced don i think don was was a producer on his last capital solo record and so i was like you know what he's an asshole and I've got the replacements, so that's fine. Like, mm-hmm. I don't need to love everything he does or him. Well, I get a call. I'm in New York, and I get a call from um, a guy, his manager that I know, and who came to be a good friend, but we had kind of knew, known each other in passing. And he's like, hey, you know, Paul doesn't, um, Paul doesn't have a label. Would you want to hear, I heard your huge replacements fan, would you want to hear the solo stuff? And he's like, and I'm like, yeah, but I got to tell you, I didn't like any of his other soul records. Right. I'll go ahead. And he's like, yeah, just make sure you don't play it for anybody and just listen to it from front to back. Cause it's 25 songs. I was like, okay. <laughs> so he, he overnights it to me and I sat, I put it in and I didn't leave my hotel room for like 12 hours. I was just listening to it over and over and over again. And I called him up. I'm like, and, and I said, so what do you want to do with this? He goes, we want to put it out just as is. I go, great. Double album, whatever you want. Sure. You just write your own check. I, I'm all in, but I want to come meet with him. And so he's like, yeah, come on up to Minneapolis. So I flew up there a couple of days later and I sat down with Paul and, um, and I walk in and he's sitting there smoking a cigar. And, and I was like, you know, we, we exchanged uh, handshakes and stuff. I'm like, you know, we, we've met before actually. And he's like, really? When? I said, you know, back in the day when you were looking for a manager before you did those solo records. And he goes, he goes, ooh, was I an asshole? I go, yeah, yeah, you were. He goes, sorry about that. I'm like, all's forgiven, man. That's funny. Then we, yeah, then, I, you know, I loved working with the guy. He was yeah. an awesome, awesome guy and such a huge influence in my life. Yeah, like, that's that's pretty rad. Like, I'm assuming, I mean, maybe maybe it was a goal of yours when starting a label like one day. Maybe I can work with some of these guys. I don't know, but that's uh, that's kind of a neat sort of like full circle thing to get to do. And I mean, obviously, oh, you're yeah. 
still the the label's still going it's not like that's the end of the story there right but um that is pretty awesome to be able to kind of to do all that and um i didn't have the audacity to think about i could maybe sign my heroes you know right and yet i ended up signing rocket from the crypt yep. face to face paul westerberg the lemon heads like i'm like this is ridiculous yeah <laughs> it's really happening so yeah, yeah. No, it's too awesome. And then, like I said, the the label's still still going strong. And you've had a couple hits along the way, even. You know, you've, you've had artists, like, I know we talk about those kind of like, these records that we just discussed as kind of being the golden years. But but at the same point, you've you've worked with some pretty legit artists all throughout, like even up to up to today, right? So uh, that's that's pretty fantastic. It's it man incredibly lucky i never never forget how lucky we are you know um, yeah. being able to do what we do you know i mean i, I don't do bigger anymore it's still labeled but we sold right. it a few years ago, but it's but just how that then translated into management and the, the people i've gotten to work with and it's just been insane man. and people i've just gotten to meet or spend time with that i've worshipped whether it's neil young or you know you name them it's just like holy shit you know I mean, just, I'm the luckiest human being on earth. <laughs> I can't think of a better way to end an interview than some guy saying I'm the luckiest human being on earth. So <laughs> I, right on, right on. I, I think, I think we'll wrap it up right there. So thanks man for, for hanging out and actually working out a time to do this. Cause we went back and forth a little bit, but this was yeah, a lot of no, fun. I'm glad we could, man. I really, really appreciate it.